Welcome, everyone. On a dark and early May morning in 2016, a text message from a neighbor came to my cell phone at 5.15 a.m. What's going on at Hank's house? Why are police surrounding the house? Are you okay? But my cell phone was turned off and even in the other room, so I never got the message. Peaceful sleep sounds echoed from the children's rooms. Even the dogs were sleeping. My Bible was open with my notebook and coffee cup and arms reach, and I started my devotions that morning as I have been doing for the past 20-some years and as Ken and Floyd Smith had modeled for me, praying that the Lord would open my eyes to see wondrous things from his word. I typically intersperse prayer with Bible reading and note-taking. And so in the morning, I tend to pray in circles. I start by confessing my sin, by seeking deeper repentance, by praying that the Lord would increase my love for him. I long for the Lord to grow me in holiness, to give me courage to proclaim Christ in word and deed, and to live as a living epistle. And I pray that he would make me a more loving wife and mother and friend. I then pray for my family, the church, my neighbors, my nation, foreign missionaries, and missions. And if no child wakes up, I get all the way through. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I thank the Lord that he is risen. I thank the Lord for the covenant of which I am a part. And with notebook open, I pray through names and situations. Well, that morning, my prayer time stopped at the category of neighbor. I was praying for my immediate neighbor, Hank, a typical morning, except that the phone that I had turned off continued to receive text messages alerting me that something was terribly, dreadfully wrong at the house across the street, the house of the man for whom I was praying. Our house and Hank's house share a dead end that stops where two acres of woods open up. When Hank's moving van first backed down his driveway in 2014, he was a self-described recluse. He worked in the yard digging ditches for reasons no one knew. He planted nothing in them. Um, occasionally, he would, like, dig out a snake and bring it over for my son, and that was, you know, he played loud music. He occasionally received cell phone calls that got him seething mad and shouting obscenities. He owned a 100-pound pit bull named Tank <laughs> who ran the streets without collar or tags. Every neighbor can recall how we all saw our life flash before our eyes the first time we met Tank bounding toward us at full throttle. <laughs> Hank didn't cut his grass for three months. And by the time the city fined him for creating a meadow, along with an eyesore, no regular mower could do the cleanup. Truth be told, Hank was not the neighbor that we prayed for when Edie sold the house and moved her family to Wisconsin. <clears throat> but we trusted that Hank was the neighbor God had planned for us. Good neighboring is at the heart of the gospel we know. So when Hank moved in, we walked across the street, 
children in tow, shared with him our contact information, introduced him to our dogs, and waited for him to reciprocate. And instead, he dismantled his, his, door, his doorbell on his front door, <laughs> which might have been circumstantial, but I, did, I took it personally. Uh, so we, we prayed for Hank, and gossip started to spring up about this man who did not fit in here. And then one day, Tank ran away. And one day turned into one night, and nights turned into weeks. And many neighbors expressed relief with that large gray pit bull wasn't running the streets. Much relief was expressed on the Nextdoor app, which, as you know, is sometimes unfiltered in the way it expresses its good intentions. But in the crisis of a lost dog, one who is also the closest companion of a lonely man, the inkling of a friendship began. We offered to help find Tank, and Hank received our open hand. We posted Tank's information on Nextdoor, our social media app that organizes communication in our neighborhood of 300 houses, and we enlisted other dog-loving neighbors to come to Hank's aid. My daughter, who was 10 years old at the time, cried herself to sleep as she would pray for Tank's return. And one morning, she just wandered across the street and told Mr. Hank about her prayers for Tank and God's faithfulness in his love over all creation. <laughs> when Tank was finally found safe and sound, we became friends. Hank gave me his cell phone number and his email address and told me not to abuse it. <laughs> we started to walk our dogs together, and eventually we were eating meals together, spending holidays at our table, and sharing life. We learned that Hank was lonely, had severe clinical depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, social anxiety, and had served time in the military. He had also lived for a season as a homeless man before his mother bought him the house across the street. Hank loved the woods behind our houses as much as the children and I do. And as winter opened into spring, we kept a tally of our nesting red-shouldered hawks, our calling American toads, our migrating and returning robins, blue jays, woodpeckers, towhees, and all of our ambling box turtles. Hank helped us chop down the dead trees in our yard, but he'd always check first to make sure that there were no babies inside them. In his garage, he always had the knick-knack that one might need, a small flashlight to attach to a reflector vest for a night run, or a little hook that holds doggy bags to the leash. Hank was uneven, and we assumed his depression made him so. Sometimes he would stay secluded in his home for weeks on end, We'd text and call, but to no avail. The only sign of life was that his garbage can would always appear at the curb at the appointed night and time. And then Amy moved in about a month prior to this event. Pink hair, twiggy, skinny. She wore the sunken eyes, the pocked skin, and the manic unpredictability of a drug addict. As neighbors were texting my inaccessible cell phone about commotion at Hank's house, I was sitting at my desk praying for my neighbors. And that's when I noticed it. 
burly men ducking around the back of my house wearing orange shirts marked D-E-A, Drug Enforcement Agency. Suddenly, serene morning darkness exploded with the unnatural intrusion of police lights right into my room. Yellow tape appeared everywhere, marking a crime scene. I left my Bible open to Psalm 42, and I ran to Kent's. I grabbed my phone, and I turned it on. Text messages bounced to life. What's going on at Hank's house? Is there really a meth lab across the street from you? (laughs) What does the conservative Bible-believing Christian family who lives across the street from a meth lab do in a crisis (laughs) of this magnitude? Well, this is just a spoiler alert. Owning and wearing modest pajamas is a very good thing. (laughs) Don't throw away those Land's End coupons. Because when the police show up at your door at 6 o'clock in the morning, you will be glad you took my advice. Okay. I'll give you little tidbits of household care as I'm going through. It is a book on hospitality, after all. Well, we could do a number of things. We could just barrack ourselves in the house, remind ourselves and our children that evil company perverts, 1 Corinthians 5.33. And like the good Pharisees that I am always poised to be, just thank God that we're not like evil meth addicts across the street. We could envelop our home in our own version of yellow crime scene tape and give the message that we're just better than this, that we make good choices and that we would never fall into this mess. We could surround ourselves with fear. I mean, what if the meth lab had exploded? The room closest to it is my daughter's bedroom. What if my child had been hurt or even killed? Or we could berate ourselves with criticism. How could we have allowed this unstable and dangerous man into our life and our home and our hearts? But of course, that's actually not what Jesus calls us to do. As neighbors started to file into our front yard, which had become front row seating for an unfolding epic drama, I scrambled eggs, put on a big pot of coffee, set out the Bibles, and invited them all in. I mean, who else but Bible-believing Christians can make redemptive sense of tragedy? Who else can see hope in the promises of God when the real lived circumstances look so dire? Who else knows that the sin that will undo me is my own, even when my neighbor's sin has crime scene written all over it? And where else but a Christian home should neighbors go to in times of unprecedented crisis? Where else is it safe to be vulnerable, lost, scared, hopeless, enraged? If we close the door and draw the shades, how in the world can we teach our children to apply biblical faith to the hard facts of life, a process that cancels out neither as it begs Jesus for hope and help, for redemptive meaning and for saving grace. If we were to lock the doors and numb ourselves through media intake or just go into remote monologues about how we always knew that guy was bad or how we make good choices, what kind of legacy does that leave for our children? Here's the thing about soothing yourself with self-delusion. Nobody buys it but you. Well, I did have other things to do on my list of things to do that day. But nothing was more important than what I was doing, 
gathering in distraught neighbors, helping the children, mine and others, process this, praying for my friend, Hank. And it was then that I realized that Amy was so not even a human being to me, quite frankly, that I didn't even know her last name. Neighbors let the police know that the Butterfields were Hank's only friends. <laughs> that was helpful. Um, we provided them with Hank's phone, Hank's mom's phone number, and in fact, we called her first before they did. One of the officers was a pit bull lover, and she said, "Ah, pit bulls sprung from meth labs don't last long at the pond. At the pound, I hate to do that to this good dog." Now, this is where I absolutely knew that the Holy Spirit was powerfully at work <laughs> in my family. My husband, who is not an animal lover, said, we'll take the dog <laughs> and we'll keep him safe until Hank is released. Kent detoxed Tank with the garden hose and Dawn dishwashing liquid and the dog dried off in the sun embraced by the children. With raised eyebrows, the policewoman told Kent that this dog would be dead twice over before Hank saw sunshine again. All morning, our house was like a trauma center, with the DEA and other members of the police team using our kitchen and bathroom, and with neighbors coming in in a steady stream of concern, laments, and criticism. By 1 o'clock, the DEA told us that they were leaving to open the meth lab. I am absolutely convinced that if we were in California, what I'm about to read, it would be completely illegal, but I'm just going to tell you what actually happened. <laughs> open the meth lab. That meant that they would open all the windows and doors in that house, and all of the noxious toxins would be released into the air that we breathe. And we were all told to stay inside until 6 p.m., when apparently all those noxious toxins, I guess a little bit like COVID particles, right? They can, you know, the, the government can predict exactly when, you know, they just kind of become fairy dust. Anyway, anyway, so, you know, our house is right next door. So they were like, close the windows, you know, stay inside, don't leave till six, then it's fairy dust, you're safe, whatever. So in my really sinful heart, I thought, wonderful, at least all of my angry neighbors are going to go home now, and I can have my house back. Um, uh, unfortunately, that's just not what happened. The nice neighbors went home. The angry neighbors stayed. Grief and sadness and betrayal mingled with the tangled feeling of entrapment. People were fuming. Bill, pacing in my kitchen, finishing up the last drop of coffee in the pot and declared something that I will never forget because it was so hilarious. He said, I can't believe that you were friends with him. Do you want to know the real problem with Christians? And I thought, well, not really, Bill, but I have this sneaky feeling. <laughs> I do. Call me a prophet, but I think you're going to tell me. He said, the problem with Christians is that you are so open-minded, it's like your brains are falling out your ears. <laughs> and I thought, obviously, you've read nothing about me on the internet. This is all very good. <laughs> but it does take a certain amount of giftedness to finish all of the coffee and insult your neighbor all in the same gulp. There's a spiritual gift to that. Sissy, an older woman, just held me and cried. And more than one neighbor asked, did you know about the meth lab? 
more than one neighbor accused, you had to have known about the meth lab. Some of you may know Christopher Yuan, who's a speaker and a writer, and he spent a couple of years in federal prison for a little drug ring, and I contacted him in the midst of this, and he said, how could you live across the street from a meth lab and not know it? So I, I was getting no reprieve from anyone. I mean, the jury was in. The neighbors hated Hank, and they weren't sure how they felt about us, knowing that we called Hank our friend. The press, immediately, on the spot, swarmed our neighborhood with relentless fixation. Ours, and I know when I say this in Raleigh, you will all laugh, ours was the biggest drug bust in Durham for that year. I know you're shocked, right? Because those things never happen in Durham, says my friends in Raleigh. Um, (laughs) And the press just did what it did best, stirred up unrest and left the neighborhood exposed and raw and frightened. And by the day's end, when I literally thought was never would never happen, and it was safe to open our windows and escort our neighbors home, we gathered our children, we prayed for Hank, we prayed for Amy, and after we tucked the children and the dogs in bed, for the first moment, Kent and I were actually alone and could talk. We were like like two little ships in the night running crisis, a crisis center. We looked each other in the eyes and we tried to piece this together. Okay, how did we miss a meth lab across the street? You know, inquiring minds want to know. Was Hank, quirky, depressed Hank, a meth dealer? He was a recluse. We never saw a car there except for his mother's. We thought dealers like had a busy life. Kent looked at me and said, would you have done this any differently? You know, befriending Hank? And I know what he meant. For the past two years, our neighbors had been suspicious about Hank. They had a bad feeling about him. Were they right and we wrong? It sure seemed that way. And I said, no, Jesus dines with sinners, and so do we. Right, Kent said, but being known as a friend of sinners has an edge that I didn't experience before now, and that edge is sharp. And like it or not, that edge was ours. And what is that edge? It's simply this. When you are a Christian, you throw your lot in with Jesus, and you lose the right to protect your own reputations. You know, I was reading in the King James recently, and um, in Titus 2.10, the only purpose of our good reputation, we're told, is to adorn the doctrines of God. Okay, that's it. That's it. There's simply no way to love the stranger without losing a little skin in the game. So we stayed up that night and we wrote two letters, one to Hank, reminding him of our friendship, our love, and the promises of God. And the other was an open invitation to our neighbors, all of our neighbors, to come to our house for cookout in three days. We posted this invitation on the Nextdoor app and it went out to 300 households. Now, this might sound excessive, even lavish, but Kent and I do this regularly, and we have come to appreciate the power of extending wide open and inclusive invitations to strangers, people we have not yet met. And two things happen when you invite everyone to your front yard or your backyard to a cookout. Um, And my favorite is the first, and Kent's favorite is the second. The first is this, 100% of your neighbors will feel loved and valued, and they will write you and tell you that. 
they will say things like, no one's invited me to anything since I got divorced. Or, you know, are you people crazy? Or, you know, it, it's wonderful. You, you actually know them. And this is Kent's favorite. It's like a math thing. He's kind of a math guy. About 10% of people will show up if you invite them within a four-day frame. <laughs> okay, so 30 is a manageable number. Okay. This is what we posted on Nextdoor. Dear neighbors, let's meet for a cookout at the Butterfields this Lord's Day starting at 3 p.m. We have a lot to talk about. I'll cook burgers and hot dogs, and we will serve sweet iced tea. Please bring lawn chairs. Love in Christ, Kent. Well, when we pulled into our driveway after church... Neighbors were actually already at our house, setting up lawn chairs, extra tables in the carport. Um, it kind of looked like there was a graduation party about to take place, and we didn't do any of it. And soon other neighbors started walking from every direction. Familiar faces, open arms, bouquet of homegrown irises clustered in a little girl's apron, a warm pan of home-baked beans in somebody's hot pad holdered hands. We embraced each other warmly. And after coolers of water and sweet iced tea were poured over ice, Kent brought the first tray of burgers and hot dogs hot off the grill to the red checkered tablecloth as he gathered us in the front yard. The timing was perfect, as voices had already started to rise in disagreement over the meaning of Hank's odd behavior and the discovery of the meth lab. Standing in the middle of the driveway, Kent delivered a combination of a sermon on loving your neighbor and a table address blessing the food. Pastors always do that. They just kind of snick it in there, those sermons. <laughs> Hank was our neighbor, Kent said. And Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, all of our neighbors, both the ones who are easy to love and the ones that are not. Kent described Hank as a mild-mannered recluse who helped us chop down trees. And Kent shared that Hank struggled with depression and his time in the army had, had left a toll on him. And Kent let it be known that the same power that raised Jesus Christ our Lord from the grave is bestowed upon all of those who repent and believe in him, including Hank and including you guys who are gossiping. Hank's story is not over yet, Hank, Kent said, and neither is yours. Jesus, Jesus saves sinners just like us. And after we ate and the kids ran off for water gun fights, I want you to know that if you're a kid and you get to play cops and robbers with crime scene tape, okay, it's a, it's a very helpful prop. It makes you feel very legit. <laughs> At some point, Kent gathered us back to the driveway to talk as some neighbors had grown what the King James would call Roth. Not describing the baked beans, but describing their, the fuming coming out of their ears. Um, and they were challenging Kent on his sympathetic interpretation of Hank. This was before the word woke was in our... Uh, uh, but I actually think someone accused my Reformed Presbyterian past, pastor husband of being a liberal, which was really funny, you know what I mean? Like, that was, that was awesome. Um, you know, people were, were worrying about things that, that really mattered to them. One of the biggest one was property values. They could literally, as every day that crime scene tape was wrapped around the neighbor house, you can just start to do the calculation. Um, as the sun set, I brought out mugs steaming with coffee. People were lingering over the risky friendships that we were beginning to forge here, of coming together in spite of betrayal and grief and disagreements 
about who Hank was and about who we are. We stood there drinking coffee and picking at potato salad until it was too dark to see our forks. Neighbors embraced as they departed, tentatively, but genuinely. Wiping runaway tears with the back of a hand, one neighbor told Kent that she had been a little girl in a Baptist church three decades ago who once believed what Kent said about Jesus saving sinners, just like us. She hadn't thought about that in 30 years, and she wondered, is Jesus still waiting for her? Another neighbor said that the pastor of his church that morning had talked about the meth lab in Durham, but he hadn't put a personal face on it, neither the personal face of Hank nor the personal face of Jesus. Another woman said at work that someone said that rotting in prison would serve this guy, you know, would would be the right justice for this awful man. And our neighbor told her colleague that Hank's Christian neighbors would probably be sticking with him because that's really what Christians do. It was a procession of hope, of vision of promise, a drop of expectation that Jesus will make something good out of all of this for Hank and for the rest of us. Well, after the all-neighbor barbecue, the cleanup of a meth lab began to take place in real time before our very eyes. It seemed that as soon as neighbors started to heal, something else would take place that would open up all of the wounds. The front door of our house faced Hank's, and there's no missing every gory detail. Meth is toxic, and anything in the house, including floorboards and walls, were removed and destroyed. Dumpsters filled the driveway, hauling away personal treasures from a life lost to us. As the children in the neighborhood watched, they grieved. Children are not insensitive in the way that adults are. And they feel the acute pain of losing a drum set and a dog and your favorite sweatshirt and your baby pictures and all of the important stuff in your junk drawer. We helplessly watched as the dumpsters filled and departed. And with each dumpster, the shame of getting caught was laid bare. That the wages of sin is death is palpable horror when you watch your neighbor disappear one dumpster at a time. It took seven to erase him completely. The children kept count. Summer turned to fall and fall to winter, and still the house remained enveloped in crime scene tape. The betrayal and grief in our neighborhood remained thick. It was during this time that Kent and I started to practice radical, ordinary, and sometimes even daily hospitality, gathering our church family, especially the singles and the students, along with our neighbors for dinner, Bible reading, singing a psalm, and a prayer. These were open invitations, and people started coming. Sometimes people brought food. Other times, people brought friends. Nightly, we gathered, and we grieved, and we opened our Bibles, and we prayed. And then one winter day, when we were snowed out of church, something happened that broke the cycle of anger in our neighborhood. You know how a snowstorm in the South goes. Oh, Nothing better. (laughs) This one started at 4 a.m. on a Saturday. Snow and ice came down fast. Everybody was homebound. By mid-morning, all the local churches were canceling Sunday services, so Kent asked me to write something on the Nextdoor app, inviting the whole neighborhood to have worship at our house. 
<clears throat> this is what I posted. Dear neighbors, because of hazardous road conditions, the church that my husband pastors, First Reformed Presbyterian Church of Durham, will be closed tomorrow. We are therefore inviting all of you to join us for a worship service at our home, as our home at 10.30 a.m. We will sing psalms and Kent will deliver a sermon. After worship, you are all invited to join us for a meal of soup and bread. Come as you are and bring a neighbor. And if you know anyone in our neighborhood who is in need of help, please let us know. Love in Christ, Rosaria. By Saturday noon, the, the roads were southern bad, which means perfect for kids and sledding, right? That's where the, there's no such thing as a car on the road when this happens. Five inches had already fallen, and the snow was coming down. The children were over the moon. After a few hours of sledding down streets in laundry baskets and boogie boards, they returned home, and I had a pile of children with frozen eyelashes and melting in my homeschool room, where a pyramid of wet, white athletic socks appeared at the front door. All of my towels and what was left of my arnica gel all went to the cause. <laughs> Kent kept an eye on the road, enlisted the bigger kids to shovel driveways of older people, and started revising a sermon that he wanted our neighbors to hear. Kent had been praying about what to preach, about what would bring healing and saving grace and a knowledge of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. As Reformed Christians, I firmly believe that when you worship God, you know, you want to know what, the, what your, ma your, your secret weapon is? It's the worship of God. And so the opportunity to have my neighbors captive, right? <laughs> Literally, ha, ah, now I've got them. <laughs> and we are worshiping God together. That seemed like an amazing gift from God. I just marveled at this opportunity. And I also marveled at the, at the fact that our neighbors had been sticking with us. You know, we disappointed each other in our conflicting responses to Hank, to his crime, um, and to his future. Um, and yet, and yet this neighborhood kept coming over for more. Well, the steady fall of snow and the steady stream of children coming in for hot chocolate then returning to shovel neighbors' driveways was comforting. I kept an eye on the worsening weather and a great prospect of Lord's Day worship, and I just started, you know, doing the thing I love to do, and that's cooking. And then um, Lord's Day morning came around. And I got up, and I normally feel great joy Lord's Day morning. It's my favorite day of the week. I live Lord's Day to Lord's Day. But that morning, I felt nothing but sheer panic. We had invited all of our neighbors on a day when we could have had a day of quiet family devotions. What if everybody actually comes? This is not outdoor barbecue weather. Would we be able to house and feed everyone? And then an even scarier thought hit me. What if nobody comes? So I poured my coffee, started my devotions, and I let the word of God comfort my agitated heart. And after private devotions, I gathered the pots of soup from the screened-in porch, which I had been using as my uh, ad hoc freezer, and I put them on a low burner. I started the rice, and I set the tables. The children readied the house for worship. We've been through this before, but no matter how often we do this, it's always exciting. 
After breakfast, we put away the almost-finished Monopoly game from the coffee table in the family room, because Kent would be using that as a makeshift pulpit very soon. And as soon as Kent prayed for our day and I started the big percolator, my beloved neighbors started walking through the door for worship. Missy and the two Millers, Ryan and his son Ben, the three Muters, five Shepherds, the Harviews, five Mackenzies, Susanna and Mark and Edie were here too. They had actually stayed the night. 28 neighbors in all and a gaggle of extra children. I didn't even count the children. I mean, I do count the children. I love children. I just, they just were kind of a blurry blob of like litter mates or something. <laughs> Some bring pots of soup. These would be not the children, the adults. Some bring loaves of bread. One neighbor brought me extra special coffee beans. I'm serving tea and coffee and hot cocoa, and the kids are embracing their friends. My daughter is squealing with delight, while my son finds places for coats and boots. Bella, our small and elegant shih tzu, will soon be burying herself in these coats. We gather our mugs and our smiles, and we press cold cheek to cold cheek. Donna, my neighborhood prayer partner, locks arms with me as she whispers, this is bigger than my dreams. One set of neighbors looks across the room to see an older lady for whom they have been praying for decades. They have longed to see her in Christ, in church, but the barriers have always seemed insurmountable until, of course, that day, when snow meant home. The Lord who numbers and names the stars, who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds and determines the number of stars and gives to all of them their names, well, he also heals broken hearts. And here she is, and here they are, to behold the fruit of their 20-year-old prayer. Kent welcomes everyone and reminds us of the powerful role that Jesus bestows upon neighbors. People sit on the couch, the floor, the piano bench, and the chairs brought in from the dining room. The children distribute every Bible and Psalter in the house. We don't have enough to go around, so people have to sit close to each other, close enough to share. The yellow crime scene tape is glaring from the front window, and Kent goes right there. He tells everyone he will be preaching on forgiveness, on Christ's forgiveness of those who repent and believe, and of our response of forgiveness for one another. Kent says Jesus calls us to forgive because without forgiveness, we cannot be agents of grace or even be in the path of God's grace. No more small talk. Kent assembles our worship service with prayer, and then he asks us to open our Psalters to Psalm 23. Kent explains that in worship, we will sing a cappella without instruments. Some neighbors have been through this. Others haven't. And finally, our neighbors are suddenly more afraid of something than a meth lab across the street. <laughs> yes, they are afraid of singing a psalm a cappella. <laughs> Kent just loves to do this to people. The melody of the psalm that we sing is in an old tune called Crimmond. And for some, this Welsh rendition is familiar and elegant. We sing slowly. We savor how mere words weave reassurance. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He may 
takes me down to in past years green he leadeth me the quiet waters by the waters outside are eerily frozen and the tire swing in the front yard shimmers encased by ice we continue to sing my soul he doth restore again and me to walk doth make within the paths of righteousness even for his own namesake. I savor every word, every promise, each soul here. Yea, though I walk in death's dark veil, yet will I fear no will for thou art with me and thy rod and staff me comfort still my mind wanders it wanders to the documentary of Temple Grandin, a professor of animal science and an autism rights leader. <clears throat> she studies cows. If you ever wondered what pastor's wives are doing when they're leading the psalm singing at church, you can pray for me. Um, and she developed a system to move cows through a chute in order to make a slaughterhouse more humane. So paradoxical, so distasteful, and so symbolic of what secularism does to culture. It makes the slaughterhouse seem inevitable and innocuous. But cows are different from sheep. Cows must be prodded from behind. Sheep must be gently led from the front and comforted from the side. That's the only way we can walk through life and death. Jesus is our shepherd, and he leads gently. He says... A table thou hast furnished me in presence of my foes. My head thou dost with oil anoint and my cup overflows. God's word rings realistic. God protects us in the midst of danger, not necessarily from danger. He says in Luke 10, 3, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And I ponder this. We are singing slowly, much more slowly than we ever would in congregational singing. And many of us are singing for the first time. The words of Christ are sinking down, down, 
down. And then we conclude. Goodness and mercy all my life shall surely follow me. And in God's house forevermore my dwelling place shall be. We take a breath and we look around. This is intimate business. When we sing a psalm together, we speak the truth of God's word one to another, truth unhinged from our problems and our peeves. We hear our vulnerability, our shaky voices. We're a little off key. People can be neighbors for decades and never come this close. Can't praise for our worship. It's a great shock to everybody that it hasn't even started yet since the terror has already been ringing through our ears. But can't praise for our worship asks God to be present with us, to work healing where healing is needed, repentance where repentance is needed, and salvation where salvation is needed. Kent doesn't mince words. Kent is not one man in the pulpit and another man in his home. And as I watch him open the Bible, I am so deeply grateful that God allowed me to marry this man. Kent's sermon is from Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Beatitudes are so rich, delivered to the disciples, they actually require faith to execute. Liberal churches don't seem to appreciate that, but it's just simply true. Audience actually matters. Kent started to preach. Kent tells our neighbors, you can show mercy only if you know God's peace. And if you are still mad at Hank, then you have spiritual work to do. Do you have God's peace? And Kent concludes with this question. Have you made peace with Jesus? Do you know him? Have you repented of your sin and placed your hope in Christ alone? Today is the day of salvation. And then Kent prays. He prays for salvation where it's needed. And he prays that God would help our unbelief. Nothing about this worship service was business as usual. It is all raw, all open, all transparent, and all very risky. And after the benediction, Kent invites everyone to step into the dining room and the kitchen and the foyer and the homeschool room, basically into all of the rooms where there is a place setting and have a meal. And so the kids bring the chairs back from the back from the family room to the dining room, and we also bring in the long piano bench and a few exercise balls, Um, (laughs) snug aromas, and the sing-song tone of neighbor talk promise good tidings. That morning, I had set places for 25 people gathering around three tables. I underestimated, but that's okay. Some of us are happy to sit on the floor. We make an assembly line, passing pots of soup through a narrow hallway with oohs and ahs over the warm bread that Macy pulls out of the oven and the amazing white chicken chili that Tina brought. And the children pile their plates high and their bowls deep, and then they head out to the freezing cold screened-in porch to eat without the grown-ups. 
We talk about kids and snow and work, cancer, bad knees and politics. And then the talk moves to Hank. Kent, tell us how Hank is doing. I know you visit him in jail, David offers as the warm bread makes another round through the tables. Kent takes a breath. Well, Hank is fragile, of course. I mean, jail breaks a man. But Hank has just recently committed his life to Jesus. This is truth unmasked. Hank's recent faith is not cheap news. Kent knows this is protective news. This is the kind of news that moves mountains. Quiet descends, a, a holy hush hovers over the table. And, and Kent explains that Hank has been desperate for help, but there's no real earthly help for him. There's no pretending otherwise. Hank needs Jesus, the rescuer, because no one else can go where he has been taken and where he will probably spend the rest of his life. He has detoxed from meth, and he is feeling completely and utterly lost. Hank does not need a pep talk. He needs Jesus, the Savior, the shepherd, to take him through the long, dark days ahead. Hank was not raised in the church, and so all of this is very new. But, Kent tells the table, he is reading his Bible, and he is praying for grace to get through each of these days. And he asked us to give him your names so that he can pray for you by name. And he is thankful for those of you who are praying for him. Now, Kent is speaking very softly now. And the room, once, once bursting with talk and laughter, is captive in silence. And Kent explains that Hank is simply no longer the drug addict from across the street. Hank is my brother in the Lord. It's hard to explain what happens to a community when the local drug addict, when the man who's the easiest to hate and despise, commits his life to Jesus. But I suspect you can imagine it simply changes everything. And that's because the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes not just the fate and the future of an individual. Jesus is not just interested in your sweet little heart. And we can debate whether we have sweet little hearts. <laughs> but the gospel changes everything. God puts the lonely in families. And how does he do this? Well, he works through you and through me. He works through your house and your life and your weakness and your children and your dining room table and your runaway dog and the laundry on your table and all of that. And we see this principle in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. Peter began to say to Jesus, See, we have left everything and have followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and into the age to come eternal life. The gospel meets us as strangers and enemies to God. And then the gospel delivers belonging in the family of God. And it promises a hundredfold of these vital and intimate relationships to all who repent and believe and put their trust in Jesus. 
But this hundredfold now in this time is actually very practical. It addresses things like, where will I live? With whom will I eat dinner and pray? How will I face the burden of my sin? Where will I go on vacation this, this summer? The hundredfold prob, uh, promise of this verse is simply not going to fall from the sky. In other words, this is not, this is not you know, a laudatory talk of the Ephesians' great spiritual cosmological promise. This is lasagna, if that's what it is. And this is gospel life. It's covenantal, it's communal, and it will come from you and from me in all of our failures and foibles and limitations. If you believe that these are dangerous, desperate, and barbaric times, then you are simply right. The princes of this world are demolishing what it means to be male, to be female, to be human, to be an image bearer with a soul that will last forever. It's all crazy. And then COVID made it even crazier. And I will tell you that during COVID, we did this like on steroids and we, and, and you know, I have not yet been arrested in my apron. You know, I, I mean, if I do, that's going to be the next shot on the next book cover. You know, it, you know, it, but it didn't happen. It didn't happen. It, it, it was a, you know, we, we are to proclaim the gospel during pestilence and war. Um, so, but the fabric is definitely, it's, it's coming apart. And in these desperate times, Jesus is still leading you from the front of the line. You matter. Your life matters. And you have people in your life who need you to be pouring the gospel into them. God has already set them apart. We're simply called to show up. So my pep talk on hospitality, I could give you my favorite recipe for minestrone soup. And if you really want that, I'll be happy to give it to you. My daughter, when she was about four, even uh, we made a little rhyme about it. So I can teach you how to, how to do it and sing it to your four-year-old if you'd like. <laughs> but here's what I want you to know about hospitality. It's the new face of spiritual warfare in our anti-Christian age. And God has equipped us to do this. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. I pray for each woman here. I pray that you would hear each heart, um, the longing of each heart. And I pray, God, that, um, that you would strengthen our churches and that you would equip us, Lord, to do your work in the world. In Jesus, I pray. Amen.